It's funny how some of us complain about sufferings but scoff at the remedy. If you aren't willing to initiate the cause that generates the desired effect, how can you expect said outcome? Things change as things are revealed. The unseen has authority over all we see, and hear, and smell, and feel. It's arrogance to think that we have it figured out. We aren't even aware of everything, let alone how to use what we have presently, adequately. And practices of movement brings us into awareness of forces and principles not ordinarily readily observable. The body is capable of tremendous things, but it takes time for the body to catch up to the mind. In fact, the mind is used to mold the body. If the mind can't or doesn't will the body, the body won't move. It's not only about being creative in imagination. Effective use of creativity in action is fruit. The goal is to reflect reciprocity justly. To reflect is to embody or represent in a faithful or appropriate way. Reciprocity is the practice of exchanging with others for mutual benefit. Justice is the quality of being fair and reasonable. So to put this thought simply, seek to be of benefit instead of reap them. Because all things work together. You have to genuinely and intentionally play your role because no one else will. Just as in our bodies, each part, every person, every people, every tribe has a job to do. The moment any individual part decides it no longer wants to be what it was created to be, the whole fails. To keep the commandments is to choose to exist in the image of the creator. That image is immune. Welcome to choosing immunity. The inexhaustible power of water. Over 75 years ago, one man showed us how to purify water naturally and how to harness its colossal power. If we were to follow Victor Schauberger's teachings today, pure and healthy water would be within our reach, as well as the ability to produce almost limitless amounts of energy from plain water and air for next to nothing. If we replace the death technology of the explosion with the biotechnology of the implosion, mankind's biggest problems could be solved, which is the reason why it has been held back to this day. And I quote, 
as far back as history permits us to see, every man who attempted to solve the mystery of water encountered bitter opposition. Every hint that we find in the ancient books which might explain the true nature of water has been blotted out in the next edition. Protecting the secret of water is a means to protect the interest power of money. Only in an economy of scarcity can interest thrive. If the problem of the production of water were to be solved, making it possible to produce any desired amount and quality of water at any given location, then man will have the power to make the expanses of the deserts bloom. The price of food and the cost of mechanical power would sink to such low levels that speculators would be able to gain nothing from them. Free access to nutrition and mechanical energy are such radical ideas that our concept of the world and all ideologies will be turned upside down. The secret of water is the capital of capital which is why any attempt to reveal it is ruthlessly terminated in embryo. These lines were written by the remarkable Victor Scharberger more than 60 years ago. A man you might say had been sent by the Most High to proclaim once again the true significance of water to an enlightened modern man, a man of uncompromising honesty and dedication to nature, a man who faced bitter opposition his whole lifetime before dying alone and impoverished, a broken man. Yet, what he left behind was an inheritance of incalculable worth, insights which still inspire in which form the building blocks of many astounding developments. And this is by uncovering something that was already known to the Incas, the Mongols, the ancient Cretans, and the Tibetan monks, that all water creates vortices, and that if you let it flow naturally, you might just experience some real miracles. Victor Schauberger's discoveries are simple, yet truly revolutionary. They tear down several of the laws of hydrology and concede far more power and significance to water than man would like to allow. Victor Schauberger was born in 1885 as the fifth of nine children in the back of beyond by Lake Plockstein in Austria. His uncle had been the last imperial hunt master in Bad Ischer during the days of Emperor Franz Joseph. His father was Master Forster, as was his grandfather, great-grandfather, and even his father before that. Victor was a real, quote, son of the forest, who would roam alone in the wild woods around the lake for days on end, observing nature in a state of purity and preservation that today no longer exists. Victor's father wanted to send him to university to study forestry, but Victor refused, 
fearing that the academics would cloud his unprejudiced, innocent view of nature as they had done to his brother. He went to an ordinary forestry school instead and became a forester. Schauberger quickly learned that water does not enjoy being exposed to sunlight. For example, there was a spring over which a stone hut had been built long ago. The hut was later torn down and the spring lay exposed to the sunlight. Before much time had passed, the spring dried up and no one could say why. When the stone hut was rebuilt, the water returned. The Romans covered their springs with stone slabs leaving only a round mouthpiece free and attaching the outlet pipe in such a way that not even air could get in. It's obvious that water loves the shade, which is why springs are found hidden in the deep forest or in clefts and rocks, and why a natural river or stream protects itself against direct sunlight with shady trees and bushes on its banks. I never looked at it as if the river chose to go through shady areas or through cliffs and rocks as if it was avoiding the sun. I always assumed that the environment around the river sprang up because of the river. It's very interesting how a consciousness is placed on the river here. Let's continue. Neither did it escape Schauberger's attention that during thaws, rising floodwaters built up banks of debris, which were often carried away on cool, clear nights. He came to the conclusion that the carrying and suction power of water is at its greatest when its temperature is low and its flow is undisturbed. He was able to prove this for the first time in the winter of 1918 when Linz faced an extreme shortage of firewood due to the war. There was more than enough wind throw lying in the nearby Prill Hills, but no pack animals to drag it down to the city or streams big enough to float it down. The hitherto obscure forester Schauberger proffered his services. He created opportunity. So that's what it's about. If you know you got something or if you you know you you for sure about something, get out there and create the opportunity. Or at least be aware enough for when that opportunity presents itself, you're ready to take advantage and, and provide the solution or solve any problems necessary. Let's continue. The hitherto obscure forester, Schauberger, proffered his services. He proposed using a small, rocky mountain stream to get the wood down into the valley. A stream which the experts said was totally unsuitable. For the first time, Victor Schauberger faced accusations that his ideas were folly and doomed to failure. And it wouldn't be the last time that he would prove his critics wrong.
unperturbed. He waited until the early hours of the morning, when the water is at its coldest, before releasing the wood into the water at just the right moment. It took only one night to get all the wood, 16,000 cubic meters, down to the valley floor. Later in his career, he would draw further attention with his outstanding log flume. So just through observation, Victor noticed that water avoided the sun. It, in, it, it moved the best when the temperature was low and that his flow was undisturbed, that it could just kind of move on its path and go where it's going. Through the application of this observation, when the, the, the town needed him or when the opportunity arose to apply what he has observed as the truth, he jumped at it. Even when people said that it's not possible, he believed his observation over what was being told to him. And he proved his observation correct. He ended up moving 16,000 cubic meters of wood. These are trees. Down to the valley floor. Where no one said it was possible. Trust yourself. Trust what you see. Trust the understanding and that you have gained through experience. Let's continue. The trout and salmon that swam in the mountain streams were another source of fascination for Victor Schauberger. How on earth did they manage to stay stationary in the water? even in a mountain torrent in full spate. How could they escape fast as grease lightning against the current instead of letting themselves be swept away by it and up to the surface, not into the sheltering depths? Did the trout too owe this capability to the water temperature? No sooner had the thought occurred to him than he decided to find out. He had 100 liters of water warmed up and released into a stream about 100 meters upstream from a trout. This small amount of water could hardly make a big difference in the stream's temperature. Yet, soon afterwards, the trout became uneasy and started striking the water forcefully with its fins. It could barely hold itself in position and indeed soon found itself washed downstream. So the trout that usually can just sit in the water and just kind of ride the stream to the point where it's, it doesn't push him away. Not only does it not sweep him away, he, it also moves against it and go and jumps. But when the temperature was thrown off even a little bit, it threw off the trout's ability to just flow with the river. Hmm. Let's continue. 
Victor Schauberger asked himself how trout managed to get past rapids and waterfalls, and why they jumped higher the more forceful the water. He observed the trout floating motionlessly upward in a stream pouring downward before being slung into the inflowing water above, just like that. Only after decades of intense observation will he find the answer. We know today that every force, material or immaterial, produces an equally strong counterforce. Exactly as a tornado pulls the masses of air outside of it downward before sucking them upward again on the inside, naturally flowing water too produces energy that flows in the opposite direction to the water upwards instead of downwards. This flow of energy visible inside a waterfall as a ray of light within the water is used by the trout like a water spout to move upward. Naturally flowing water automatically creates a vortex, just like a tornado would. So the trout, when the conditions are proper, meaning the temperature is how it's supposed to be and nothing is out of whack, the trout can flow with the river locate these naturally occurring vortexes in the flowing water and use it to shoot itself out into the the air out into the the upper realm the upper depths of the water just by being calm in observing, it takes advantage of naturally occurring phenomena. And there's nothing to say that we can't do the same, except our lack of awareness of it and our lack of observation. Let's continue. Schauberger made another unbelievable discovery. On an icy moonlit winter night, he watched stones as big as a man's head loosen themselves from the basin of a mountain stream circle like the trout before its great leap hover upward and then bob on the surface these are heavy stones he couldn't believe his eyes what power was at work here the same power of levitation dormant in the water which lets the trout jump not all of the stones levitated though only the polished egg-shaped ones rose up to dance on the surface, apparently weightless. The rough stones lay motionless on the bottom, as one would expect from a rock. Why? The egg shape 
is the child of the vortex. Geometrically speaking, it arises inside a hyperbolic vortex and since water two forms vortices, egg shapes can be particularly easily moved and break free of the law of gravity. You can test this yourself by taking a round, tall, thin jar, filling it with water and slipping an egg into it. By lightly swirling the water, using a pencil for example, you will be able to see the egg slowly rising from the bottom and floating to the top, where it stays as long as the eddy remains intact. So the egg shape is the child of the vortex, and vortices occur in naturally flowing water. When the firmament separated the waters above from the waters below, I'm sure this created a stream or a waterfall of some type or flowing water. So the waters flowing from above to the waters below will create a vortices. And it was very interesting that um, Neil Neil Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson, recently or not too long ago, mentioned something about the earth being quote unquote egg shaped. These stones in the river is a microcosm of our earth on this plane. The vortices that's created, the vortex created from the free-flowing water, from the firmament down to the earth, or from the waters above down to the waters below, balance our plane in the same way the stones are balanced in the river. All of Victor Schauberger's discoveries all of his work was just him observing and working in conjunction with as opposed to controlling and attempting to force an outcome. The article used in this segment was found at factsarefacts.com. If you search the inexhaustible power of water, it shall come up. Coming up next is Working Out by J.I.D. Aquifers, underground stores of fresh water. Aquifers are underground layers of rock that are saturated with water that can be brought to the surface through natural springs or by pumping. The groundwater contained in aquifers is one of the most important sources of water on Earth. About 30% of our liquid freshwater is groundwater, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. 
The rest is found at the surface in lakes, streams, rivers, and wetlands. Most of the world's freshwater, about 69%, is locked away in glaciers and ice caps. The U.S. Geological Survey website has a map of important aquifers in the contiguous United States. Man, so as we know, when um, when they arrived here and the genocide that took place on the Native Americans was so vast that it changed the climate. And that's what caused the atmosphere of the earth to dip and for the ice caps to form and for the walls of, and for that the wall of Antarctica to form. It was the killing of us, the taking away of our carbon monoxide and the over exposure of the oxygen that we were not taking in. So if 69% of our fresh water is locked away in glaciers and ice caps, now that our numbers are getting back to where they need to be, it's not global warming that's happening. Things are just going back to normal. Let's continue. Groundwater can be found in a range of different types of rock, but the most productive aquifers are found in porous, permeable rock, such as sandstone, or the open cavities and caves of limestone aquifers. Groundwater moves more readily through these materials, which allows for faster pumping and other methods of extracting the water. Aquifers can also be found in regions where the rock is made of a denser material, such as granite or basalt, if that rock has cracks and fractures. Aquifers come in many shapes and sizes, but they are really a contained underground repository of water, says Stephen Phillips, a hydrologist with the U.S. Geological Survey in Sacramento, California. Dense and permeable material like clay or shell can act as an aquitard, i.e. a layer of rock or other material that is almost impenetrable to water. Though groundwater might move through such material, it will do so very slowly, if at all. Faults or mountains can also block the movement of fresh groundwater, as can the ocean, Philip said. An aquitard can trap groundwater in the aquifer and create an artesian well. When groundwater flows beneath an aquitard from a higher elevation area to a lower elevation, such as from a mountain slope to a valley floor, the pressure on the groundwater can be enough to force the water out of any well that's drilled into that aquifer. Such wells are known as artesian wells, and the aquifers they tap into are called artesian aquifers or confined aquifers so aquifer is the fresh water that comes off that comes from rain slides down mountain mountains is poured into the ground through stream beds that slowly falls underground and it's collected or it's pulled in between material that's impenetrable to water so aquifers they end up being underground reservoirs of just clean fresh water that can be tapped into Let's continue. 
When new surface water enters an aquifer, it recharges the groundwater supply. Recharge primarily happens near mountains, and groundwater usually flows downward from mountain slopes towards streams and rivers. Depending on the density of the rock and soil through which groundwater moves, it can creep along as slowly as a few centimeters in a century, according to Environment Canada. In other areas where the rock and soil are looser and more permeable, groundwater can move several feet in a day. The water in an aquifer can be held beneath the Earth's surface for many centuries. Hydrologists estimate that the water in some aquifers is more than 10,000 years old, meaning that it fell to the Earth's surface as rain or snow roughly 6,000 years before Egypt's Great Pyramid of Giza was built. The oldest groundwater ever found was discovered two miles deep in a Canadian mine and trapped there between 1.5 and 2.64 billion years ago. But the deeper one digs for water, the saltier the liquid becomes, Philip said. Groundwater can be very, very deep, but eventually it's a brine, he said. For freshwater, the depths are very limited. The article used in this segment was found at LiveScience.com. If you search aquifers, underground stores of fresh water, it should come up. Up next, we have Less of Me by Organic Nasa. Yo, if you ain't talking about the drop, then what is you saying? Four, three, two. The Hohokam, the indigenous farmers of the desert. Hohokam tradition, which spanned some 1,450 years from early in the first millennium to AD 1450, seems to have materialized from a void and vanished into darkness. In between, the Hohokam made the Sonoran Desert bloom. They raised new standards in artistry, innovation, and craftsmanship. They set their cultural sails to Mesoamerican winds. So already it's saying that the Hohokam was there for a little under 1500 years. And it seems like they just appeared out of nowhere and then they just vanished. But in between, they figured out how to make a desert area bloom or yield its fruit. Like the Mongolong to the east, the Hohokam occupied a geologically and ecologically diverse region. At its maximum, their range extended from the basin and range in the low desert country of northern Sonora and southern Arizona northward up to the famed Mongolong Rim escarpment and onto the Colorado Plateau's southwestern edge. So they were basically all in the Four Corners region. 
in the basin and range area of southeastern Arizona and northeastern Sonora, mountain peaks reach elevations of more than 10,000 feet above sea level, and valley floors lay at elevations as low as 500 feet above sea level. With this drastic difference, taking what we just learned about groundwater and aquifers, they probably had an abundance underneath their valleys. In the mountain ranges, which trend from north-northwest to south-southeast, spruce and fir dominate the highest elevations. Pines and aspens, pines and oaks, and oaks and chaparral dominate the intermediate elevations. Typically, just above the mountain debris slopes, or bajadas, grasses, and then desert shrubs signify the transition from forested lands to the Sonoran Desert. Along the upper parts of the bajadas, the statuesque columnar cactus, the cigario, presides over a diverse plant community, which includes, for instance, Acia, jojoba, triangle leaf bursage, and prickly pears. Lower, the saguaro dominates growths of mesquite, palo verde, shola, and bitter candalia. Cottonwood, sycamore, walnut, and ash trees grow along washes. Cottonwood is also a plant that is used to find the underground aquifers. In desert flats, creosote, mesquite, and acia assume preeminent roles. Annual rainfall in the region ranges from some 30 inches at the highest elevations to less than 10 inches in the lower elevations. Most of the rain falls during two periods, midwinter and midsummer. Temperatures in May through September often exceed 100 degrees Fahrenheit. To the west, in the low desert country which descends to sea level at the mouth of the Colorado River, small mountain ranges lie like elongated islands within the desert basins. Plants grow sparsely on the Rocky Mountain crests. Small to medium-sized bushes cling tenaciously to scatter footholds down the slopes and across the desert floor. On the upper reaches of the Bajadas, the Cigarro stands guard over barrel cactus, hedgehog cactus, teddy bear shola, desert agave, and desert ironwood. Along the lower slopes and the washes, screw bean mesquite, blue palo verde, bursage, acotillo, and shola characterize the plant community. In the open valley floors, creosote, mesquites, Various shola species and beaver tail cactus command the landscape. Annual rainfall averages less than four inches 
and summer temperatures frequently reach 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Along the slopes of the Mongolong Rim, which extends from southeast to northwest for nearly 200 miles across the heart of Arizona, in the Hohokam corner of the Colorado Plateau, open ponderosa pine forests with a carpet of grass stand in powerful contrast to the thorny desert basins to the south. Because of the higher altitude of the Colorado Plateau, as much as several thousand feet above the desert basins, annual rainfall averages about 20 inches. Summers stay cooler, winters can turn fiercely cold. The land serves as both commissary and general store for the Hohokam people. Wild fruits, seeds, nuts and roots, both from the desert and the mountains supplemented Hohokam agricultural crops as food sources. Many desert and mountain plants yielded materials for construction, tools, weapons, clothing, containers, and campfires. Bighorn sheep, elk, mule deer, white-tailed deer, antelope, rabbits, rodents, turkeys, quail, and reptiles from across the desert and the mountain slopes fell to Hohokam hunters' arrows, nets, or snares. Rock exposure served as quarries for the lithic resources essential to the manufacture of weapons, stone vessels, and tools. Clay deposits provided the raw material for the crafting of ceramic pots and figurines. The Hohokam's region was very rich in resources if you knew how to, how to use it, how to locate the water, how to go into the plants to get the seeds out, how to take advantage of the water inside of the cacti. Even to the things they were hunting and gathering, they had to track and observe and understand how they interacted with their environment in order to, to trap them. Our greatness is in our observation, but also through observing, we gain understanding of the processes that are actually happening. We see how different organisms are interacting with different organisms. We see that water can be located underground based off of what's growing above it. Based off of the landscape, we see that water moves from the higher elevation down to the lower elevation and possibly seeps through to where we will find fresh water where the eye would never readily just observe. Observation brings into awareness. We have to start relying on experience again. Let's continue. When the archaeological curtain first lifted to reveal the early Hohokam, who occupied the south-central Arizona desert region early in the first millennium, there stood not the last representatives of a predominantly nomadic hunting and gathering people, but rather the residents of full-fledged farming and industrial communities. According to George J. Goomerman and Emil W. Hari, the early Hohokam excavated long and complex canal systems to irrigate their fields of corn, beans, squash, and other crops. They dug wells to tap underground water sources. Their craftsmen sculpted stone into bowls and trough-like grinding basins turned local clays into simple but well-made vessels and figurines. 
They used turquoise to fashion elaborate mosaics and made specific coast shell into jewelry and ornaments. Just to confuse archaeologists, the Hohokam also produced an assemblage of rudimentary artifacts which resembled those of early Mongolong farmers to the east. I'm sure the Hohokam wasn't thinking about confusing archaeologists. The archaeologists just came along and got confused by what they found. Let's continue. Based on the initial archaeological evidence, the first researchers believed that colonial pioneers must have imported a more advanced Mesoamerican tradition to found the Hohokam culture around the beginning of the first millennium. Based on later archaeological evidence, other researchers, perhaps most, came to believe that local descendants of ancient hunting and gathering traditions of the desert responded to Mesoamerican influences and emerged as the Hohokam. See, those initial researchers, if they were speaking about colonial pioneers, that means once they're talking about once the Europeans got here. So their researchers thought that other Europeans imported some other Mesoamericans from somewhere else and found that and found that culture here. They couldn't believe that the indigenous people were already farming and industrious. Let's continue. Still, other students have suggested that Hohokam immigrants arrived from some unknown Mesoamerican homeland region to sweep over the desert hunter-gatherers and set up colonial housekeeping in southern Arizona sometime in the second half of the first millennium. Some investigators argue that the Hohokam region became a Mesoamerican frontier outpost. Others believe that the Hohokam represented a local development with no more than a Mesoamerican veneer. We see Hohokam origins in their early development through a foggy window. Yeah. They don't understand at all. Or they're purposely muddying the subject so the truth can't readily be recognized. let's continue in their first phase which lasted some seven or eight centuries until about AD 750 the Hohokam established early small villages primarily in the vicinity of the confluence of the Gilya and Salt Rivers that's near modern Phoenix and on the floodplains of the Santa Cruz River which is near modern Tucson within their villages they built small clusters of lodges around open courtyards with areas set aside for work sites and cemeteries. They used the work sites for food processing, manufacturing, and crafting areas. They used the cemeteries both for inhumations and for cremations. Hamlets made up of several courtyard groupings may have been occupied by about 100 individuals, Linda Cordell said in her Archaeology of the Southwest. The earliest Hohokam lived, presumably as extended families, in unusually large lodges, about 1,000 to 2,500 square feet, which had either rectangular or square floor plans, often with two narrow entrances and two interior fire hearths. To raise a structure, the builders scraped away loose desert soil, often exposing a Kalish hardpan, which would serve both as foundation 
and floor. They erected a framework of primary vertical posts, roof supports at the corners and sometimes along the central axis. And they added smaller vertical support posts along the outer walls. They built a flat or slightly pitched roof and sloping walls of bush and grass and plastered the structure with mud or clay. They might have used the largest structures, not as residences, but as gathering places for the community. They had to rebuild their structures continually because the available materials in the construction methods suffered frequent failure. The Hohokam also built small isolated oval-shaped brush field houses near their cropland, presumably to serve as temporary lodges during the busy and demanding planting, growing, and harvest seasons. The early structures served as templates for Hohokam structures throughout the history of the tradition. In practices that would change little over time, the Hohokam furnished their lodges with low sweeping platforms, woven sleeping mats, blankets, cooking pots, eating bowls, storage vessels, blankets, grinding stones, tools, and weaponry. They stored food in granularies or storage compartments just outside their lodges. So this Hohokam was a very modern, industrious people. Like their communities are set up no different, maybe even more advanced than our communities today. In fact, they may have had the upper hand on us due to the fact they had to drop on their environment. They knew how to use it. They knew what they were looking at. They understood the knowledge that took something from being just a material to being a resource. The article used in this segment was found at DesertUSA.com. If you search Native Americans, Farmers of the Desert, the Hohokam, it should come up. This entire universe could be likened to a tool. The definition of tool is a device or implement used to carry out a particular function. Is the Most High not using us and everything around us to carry out his function or plan? Were we not all created as completely unique individuals to play completely unique roles for the advancement of the whole? How dare we boast, boast about ourselves? or any of the works created with these hands as if we did anything at all. His very breath is our life. So if he is the foundation, how is he not credited for everything after? We, as a material, on the individual level and as a whole, aren't being allowed to reach the requirements needed to become the tools that the Most High intended for us to be. This means that we aren't reaching the goals that the Most High intended for us to reach. We aren't growing and progressing as he planned for us to. We've become stagnant. So ultimately, we aren't playing the position in the overall universe that we were created to play. To keep the commandments is to choose to exist in the image of the creator. That image is immune. Welcome to choosing immunity.